Growing up in South Africa, Christmas was about the long drive to the coast, sunshine, rise, and the never-ending background noise of cricket commentary. But there was something else that was just as much of a ritual as Father Christmas and Happy New Year, and that was the news reports of road deaths, drownings, and overflowing trauma wards that appeared at the beginning of the year. Alcohol-related death and injury seemed like a normal part of society, and when the government banned alcohol in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, our problem with alcohol was thrust into the limelight like never before. Welcome to Debatable, the podcast that explores the big, messy questions of our time. I'm your host, Kate McLeod. If you listened to the previous episode of Debatable, you'll notice that the format's a bit different this week. This is partly because it's very difficult to find people willing to do that kind of reverse debate that I did last time, but also because with this particular issue, I wanted to really get into the details and explore the nitty gritty of one side of this issue which is how do we deal with the problem we have in South Africa with alcohol? What can we do to make real change happen? So this week, I'm doing a one-on-one interview with an expert. He's been working in the field for more than 25 years, but these past months, he's found himself caught in controversy and center stage in the debate around the alcohol ban. I'm Professor Charles Perry. I'm the director of the Alcohol, Tobacco and Other Drug Research Unit at the South African Medical Research Council, where I've been employed for 30 years working in this area. So what's it been like for you since the start of the pandemic? It's, yeah, it's been huge because I've taken certain positions which you'll get to. So it's not all popular and there have been people's jobs are at stake and the industry has been very unhappy and it's been a crazy hundred and 50 plus days. Have you given a lot more interviews than you normally would give in that time? Oh, tons more. I've done over 120 over the time with local international news, TV news. I've got sucked into it. And one stage, my model was used to justify the second ban on alcohol. So, you know, we, we were asked to do some modeling for the ministerial advisory committee, but we put several scenarios, but then one of them got picked up a bit and used to justify the government's decision, even though we'd suggested other alternatives. And then the government kept quiet. So the only thing the industry and everybody had was our modeling because we believe in transparency. So it's been incredibly active since 1st of April, really. Can you talk a bit about the role of the South African Medical Research Council? So the kind of work that you do and also how your work is funded. Our role really is to do research to improve the health of the people of South Africa. We fund research and we also have units both at universities and in-house units which do research in certain areas. The Alcohol, Tobacco and Other Drug Research Unit is one of the 11 intramural research units at the MRC. It's a parastatal, so we get a lot of our funding from government through a parliamentary grant, but we also can write applications for international funding. We have about 25 core staff members based mainly in in the Western Cape and in Gauteng province around Johannesburg, Pretoria. And we conduct probably around about 10, 15 or or more research projects at any given time, focusing on the links between alcohol and infectious diseases, what we call epidemiology, policy work, and increasingly work in the area of non-communicable diseases. We lecture we teach graduate students and we, yeah, we try to inform policy. So it's got a very practical focus as well. 
how did you get into this field? Is that something you've always been interested in? Well, I started off at the Medical Research Council as a student, in fact, back in the early 1980s, and I was working in biostatistics. So my initial degree was in mathematical statistics. I, after working as a statistician for a while, I thought I'd actually prefer to work with people and become a clinical psychologist. So after completing a, a master's degree in stats at the University of Cape Town, I then went over to the US and did another master's degree in clinical psychology at a place called Wheaton College in Chicago, but then realized that I really was much more interested in addressing the upstream drivers of health. So that's why I went on to do a doctorate at the University of Virginia in community psychology, which is really looking at structural changes to improve health and then did a postdoctoral fellowship in clinical services research at the University of Pittsburgh, and then came back to South Africa after Nelson Mandela was released in 1990, and took up a job at the Medical Research Council, which sort of one thing led to another, and I got sucked into working in the alcohol area, and eventually had my own unit focusing on alcohol and drug abuse, which has now got tobacco added. And it was very uh, unexpected what's happening with the coronavirus situation, finding that my unit was sort of center stage in some of the policy issues and debates in South Africa, because we had, you know, one of the, we're probably the only country which has had a ban on tobacco sales. And we're one of the few countries which has had a a ban on alcohol sales. So we found ourselves being sucked into media conversations, into working with the government in responding to legal challenges. And yeah, it was sort of a most unexpected thing. You know, we're dealing with an infectious disease and yet suddenly alcohol and tobacco become sort of almost central issues as part of our response in South Africa. But I do drink, just so that you know, I'm not a pushing it from any sort of temperance background or things like that either. So, Can you describe South Africa's drinking profile, sort of pre-pandemic, and perhaps also give an indication of where the country sits from a global perspective? Many people in South Africa don't drink alcohol. In fact, only, according to the World Health Organization, 31% of persons 15 years and older in South Africa consume alcohol which compares to a figure of about 43% at the global level. So we're substantially less in terms of the proportion of people who drink. However, when we look at the amount drunk per drinker per day, we're the sixth highest in the world at 64.6 grams of pure alcohol per drinker per day, which is between five and six standard drinks. And the world average is 32.8 grams. So we almost double the, the global average for the amount that the drinkers drink per day on average. And then we're also very high when we look at binge drinking. 59% of South African drinkers engage in binge drinking at least once a month. And that's defined as five or more drinks on a single occasion, and that compares to a global average of 50%, so we're nine percentage points higher than the global average, and we are about 20 percentage points higher than the sub-Saharan African average. So the issue is not the percentage of people who drink, it's the amount drunk per drinker, and we have a a phenomenon where uh, many people engage in heavy drinking, particularly over weekends, so that's been our problem for quite a long time. 
What are the harms associated with that problem? It's the fifth highest risk factor for death and disability in the country. And the number of people who who die from alcohol-related causes is extremely high. One figure is 171 people per day dying of alcohol-related causes. That's probably the upper end. But And and how is that distributed? It's distributed around alcohol's effect on infectious diseases, HIV and TB, in fact, linked to to causal factors and also to a worst outcome for people who have HIV and TB. It's also linked to self-harm, mental health problems, which can lead to death. It's linked to non-communicable diseases such as liver cirrhosis and and cancer. We have a lot of alcohol-related trauma. One just needs to go to our accident emergency units to see, particularly over weekends, the sort of war zones. And that was the, the normal, which people really had come to accept. What is it about the context of South Africa that makes it such a fertile ground for alcohol abuse? And also, what are the obstacles that prevent us from solving that problem? We really don't have a very strong national alcohol strategy. We have a heavy drinking population. We have a weak regulatory environment. And the industry has a lot of free reign. Some of the legislation has been stalled for up to seven years. For example, a bill around alcohol marketing was approved in 2013. It hasn't gone anywhere. We had the Road Traffic Amendment Bill of 2015, which hasn't gone anywhere. The Liquor Amendment Bill, which is our more overarching strategy to deal with alcohol, which looks a bit at marketing, it looks a bit at, at the age of, of when people consume alcohol, it looks at liquor outlet policy. And that also is a 2016 piece of legislation which hasn't been properly enacted. We have a problem where the large sectors of the industry are also dependent on heavy drinking to make the profits that their shareholders demand. So if you, for example, look at South African breweries, they're producing 3.1 billion litres of uh, beer per year. And that translates to between four and five, 330 mil cans of beer per beer drinker per day. So they've also become dependent on this heavy drinking population. So it's an unhealthy synergy. Uh, We have a lot of lifestyle marketing, which links drinking to social and financial success. Marketing is not regulated by the government, it's self-regulation by the industry, which is incredibly weak. We have an industry which is putting out products which we believe from the public health side are promoting heavy drinking. So we we saw a few years ago, South African breweries um, started selling beer in one liter containers. They were already selling most of their products in, in 750, that's a quart mills. And the price comes down when you're buying these products. And when you're looking at beer, they don't have a lid. So you, once you've opened it, you've got to drink it. And we also have wine in a box, five liter boxes, three liter boxes, one liter boxes. Although obviously many people drink by the 750 ml bottle. Our own research has shown a risk factor for the larger the container, whether it's a glass, an extra large glass of wine, or whether it's a, a larger container of beer that you're buying, it's been linked to heavy drinking. The other risk factors, the price of alcohol. Many people are buying alcohol for equivalent of five rand a standard unit or even less sometimes. And when you're looking at the beers, it's often between four and six rand per standard unit, which is, which is very cheap. Um, taxation on alcohol has fallen dramatically since the 1970s when you compare it, for example, to cigarettes. Availability, we have 
about 95,000 licensed outlets. We have 180,000 unlicensed outlets, which are homes or small outlets which aren't even licensed. So, so if it's unregulated, the hours aren't properly regulated. It's not surprising we have a problem. Plus, there are psychological stresses in South Africa. We've had poverty. We have a, a legacy of take migrant labor systems, even something we call the DOP system, the TOT system, where people were partly paid in in alcohol for their labor. And there's these legacies of these issues and trauma from apartheid. And then you've got you know, other people suffer physical and psychological traumas in different ways. We have high levels of gender-based violence. So we're a country with a lot of um, stresses and you throw into this mix a weak regulatory environment, an aggressive industry, which is trying to expand. And it's not surprising we have such heavy consumption and that's you know important contextual issue for how we found ourselves at the start of the pandemic. For those people that are listening that are not South African, could you just explain the alcohol restrictions that were put in place by the government since the start of the pandemic and the reasons behind those restrictions? The government surprised everybody with their initial policies around alcohol on the 18th of March. The government instituted an initial what we call lockdown light where with regard to alcohol, they said it can only be sold from Mondays to Fridays and then Saturday mornings, and there were restricted hours. And then that's for off-consumption sales. But for on-consumption, they said that you could only buy it until 6 p.m. That's in a restaurant or a bar, and there couldn't be more than 50 people. So right from the very beginning, they took quite a strong stance against alcohol, which I was quite surprised about because I think the government could have done a whole lot more in the past. And then when the full lockdown, we were level five, started on the 27th of March, they actually banned alcohol sales completely. It wasn't illegal to drink alcohol or to make your own, but you couldn't transport it and you couldn't buy it anywhere. That was very surprising that that decision was taken, but it certainly made sense to me. And the reason given was to free up hospital space because there was a feeling that hospitals were going to be inundated with COVID-19 patients and they didn't need to deal with all the alcohol-related trauma, which I guess government was aware of, but hadn't really done enough to deal with. And then the second reason was provided by the Minister of Police, who talked about alcohol-related crime. And there was a curfew instituted and a feeling like they really just didn't need the alcohol-related crime. We're dealing with a national disaster, so let's turn off the alcohol taps. So that was what happened initially. Are there other links between alcohol and COVID-19? Well, certainly there's an understanding that drinking is a social phenomenon and that when people drink, it, it can undermine physical distancing and it really increases the opportunity for community transmission. And we live in a country where many people live in quite crowded living situations. They can't just go off into their nice houses and drink alone, although that wasn't specifically given as a reason. Another reason that I think could have been perhaps given more attention was the link between alcohol and gender-based violence. That only came out later where when people are confined to homes, which was happened with the initial lockdown, you really couldn't leave your home even for exercise. You could go to buy food, you could go to a hospital, or if you're an essential worker. So it was very much a hard lockdown. And if you throw alcohol into that mix where people are living in crowded situations, it, it really 
is likely to increase the risk of gender-based violence. And then there's another risk too that really hasn't been given much attention anywhere is around the link between heavy drinking and lung health and immunity. So it weakens your immune system. And in fact, people who are heavy drinkers have damage their lungs, which they don't even know about, but when a, a secondary infection comes, for example, from COVID-19, then suddenly they'll, they'll have a worse outcome. Can you talk a bit about the modeling that you did with regards to the lockdown? I became involved just after Easter when I realized that we needed to, to have better data to model what's happening at the hospitals. Our hospitals suddenly saw a drop of 60 to 70% in trauma admissions. They went incredibly quiet and that got a lot of media attention. And in fact, in the beginning of the lockdown, the UK Financial Times actually had South Africa and Israel as the only two countries which had an a net negative excess in deaths. So we were actually saving lives at the initial point in the pandemic because we weren't seeing the COVID deaths yet and we were saving the deaths from trauma and non-natural deaths. So that really brought me into the picture because I was trying to think, well, what's going to happen when they lift the ban on alcohol sales? So I did some modeling to look at exactly how many trauma admissions we have per week in South Africa and worked out that it was about 40,000 trauma presentations at government hospitals around the country every week. That's at almost 400 hospitals around the country. And that if the ban was lifted, that just under 5,000 trauma cases would come back. And then we looked at the proportion of those that were alcohol-related, and about 40% of trauma in South Africa is alcohol-related. And then we worked back to, if you open up under these conditions, how much of that will return? And we worked out that about 48% of the 40% of which is alcohol-related trauma would return once alcohol sales were allowed to resume. Our model was severely attacked. I mean, I received hate mail, but yet, if anything, we underestimated the alcohol-related trauma that would come back. So how did things play out when the ban ended? When we moved to level three on the 1st of June, they opened up all licensed establishments, but only for off-consumption. From nine o'clock till five o'clock, Monday to Thursday, you could sell alcohol for takeaway only. That resulted in an immediate surge again in alcohol-related deaths and trauma, which really was the thing that brought the public's attention to the matter. It was just astounding. We had a sort of a natural experiment showing what would happen if alcohol wasn't available. And I listened to an interview from the CEO of Baraguanath Hospital in Johannesburg, who talked about a 100% increase in trauma presentations on the Monday compared to the Sunday, the day before. That was the 31st of May versus the 1st of June. And she said the wards were just filled with intoxicated people who were injured. So that was one impact. But the last weekend was the first weekend after we had lifted the second ban on liquor sales. And the data from Tigerberg Hospital in Cape Town showed that the weekend before the the most recent ban on liquor sales was lifted, they had 75 trauma admissions. And then this past weekend, the first weekend after the ban was lifted, it increased to 155. So a more than 100% increase. And 85% of those trauma admissions this past weekend were clinically assessed to be alcohol-related. And these 
have a big impact on hospital resources. The trauma doctors talked about how amazing it was. They could now go and help on the medical wards and deal with COVID patients. When someone comes in from an alcohol-related stabbing and that, it takes about five people to operate in operating theater. They talked about over a 24-hour period that the previous weekend before the ban was lifted, they had two cases needing ventilation and then increased to six needing to be put on ventilators in a 24-hour period. So you could be looking over the whole weekend of putting six trauma patients on ventilation and then suddenly having to go to 18. And that puts a huge drain on hospital resources, particularly when ventilators are needed for COVID-19 patients. Well, that really deals with this argument people made about an increase in black market alcohol. The ban obviously did work and did stop people from drinking. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the arguments that people even today say in the industry that it didn't have an impact, it just fueled the illegal sales of alcohol. That certainly did happen with tobacco, but not alcohol. I mean, my answer to that is we wouldn't have seen the dramatic decreases when there was bans and increases when the bans were lifted. It affected trauma admissions. It affected non-natural deaths, gender-based violence. All of those fluctuated depending on whether alcohol was available or not. So if there was a, a widespread availability of illicit alcohol, we wouldn't have had those dramatic effects. And I just don't buy that argument at all. Obviously, the restrictions on movements had some impact on trauma-related injuries and deaths. You know, you weren't getting people dying on the mountain because people weren't climbing the mountain or there were much less pedestrian injuries and deaths and, and motor vehicle injuries and deaths because the roads were fairly empty. There were a few cases of home brews that killed people. Certainly less than 20 was what I picked up, which may sound a lot, but really it's not a lot when you're looking at probably in excess of 100 alcohol-related deaths each day in the country. It's not the sort of product which gets easily transported across borders and our borders are quite far away. It's not like Europe where everything's quite close. Some products like beer don't travel very well over long distances. So that's why they make breweries where people are drinking. There were people home brewing with pineapples and things like that. Pineapples became quite scarce. But there's no ways that unless everybody was brewing 24-7, you know, if you make your own beer, it takes a couple of weeks to brew. So it really wasn't filling the gap. What was your involvement with government during the pandemic? Initially, we were asked to give input in terms of preparing legal responses to challenges by industry. There was a court case by the Gauteng Liquor Forum, which is a, a grouping of liquor traders in the Johannesburg, Pretoria area, and they took the presidency and the government to court over the initial ban. I got called in to give input in helping to defend against that legal action. And that's the role that's, that I played during the, the, the first few months of the pandemic. But then increasingly the doors opened up and I've had opportunities to speak to political parties, the, the ANC Health Study Group in Parliament. I've also spoken to the Health Portfolio Committee, which is a multi-party grouping in Parliament and presented the harms of alcohol and how we should be dealing with it going forward. And I, I didn't hold my punches there. And then later on, I found the relationship has changed and I would get phone calls and, and asked to give input on strategies that the government should be looking at to deal with alcohol at this stage in the pandemic. I used all the avenues I had in different government departments, the presidency and in the health department and social development and so on. And I spoke a lot in the media as well. I've done over 100 interviews on alcohol issues during the, the pandemic. 
You made some recommendations to government regarding alcohol restrictions that could be implemented after the lifting of the ban to help with the response to the pandemic. Can you talk a bit about that? So we proposed a number of measures to, once the ban is lifted, further control alcohol in different ways so that we didn't get that surge that we had uh, on the 1st of June. But the government decided for various reasons not to impose any restrictions. I mean, the only reason I can think is that they felt that they shouldn't be using disaster management regulations to deal with issues that should really be discussed in in Parliament. But they do have the powers under the disaster management regulations to control things like the amount people could purchase. We also suggested that they stop all advertising of alcohol except at the point of sale so as not to promote alcohol. We also felt that they should not have special offers and things like that at this particular time. The government is currently starting to talk about dropping the maximum level for drink driving to zero. And we felt maybe they should have brought a 0.02 limit in at this time and better enforcement of drink driving to stop alcohol-related motor vehicle trauma coming to hospitals. And there was a whole basket of measures that we felt should have been implemented when the most recent sales ban was lifted. Has the climate changed in South Africa since COVID-19? In terms of reform and change, do people feel differently about the problem? Certainly the issue around alcohol has got into the public discourse. There was an incident this past weekend where there was a drunk driver who was being pursued by the police and they called up reinforcements and another police vehicle came from the other direction to try and intercept. And the drunk driver actually drove into the other police car and killed three police officers. And that gained a whole lot of attention and has led to the Minister of Transport saying he's going to fast track the legislation to stop drinking and driving by making it a zero level, so you can't drink at all. And that's now in the public debate this week around effective strategies to deal with alcohol. So I think the industry was caught unawares. They didn't expect to not be able to trade for 102 days. Uh, So they previously had quite a close relationship with government. And and I think this really potentially shows a a break in that relationship, particularly around the second ban. They weren't given any notice. The president spoke in the evening and said, from tomorrow, no alcohol will be sold. And this was to prevent people from, on the Monday morning, being able to purchase alcohol and get ready for a ban. So that caught everybody unaware. I think we have a potential for having a meaningful debate about how do we sort this problem out going forward. Everyone knows it has to be sorted out. I mean, the industry is putting up some suggestions, but it's the same old things we usually hear from industry around how they will support drink driving efforts And they want to support education, which really isn't that effective. But my view is the government needs to be much more proactive in fixing our national liquor strategy. Otherwise, we're going to continue with this going forward. And, you know, the point is it can't really be business as usual. We can't have an industry which depends on heavy drinking to make the profits that it it wants to make. And yet there's a huge fallout in terms of trauma and and non-natural deaths and gender-based violence. Do you think the sway of the alcohol industry has been the primary thing holding back policy changes? Whether it's the primary thing or a really important factor, I certainly do believe that we've got numerous examples of of industry interference in trying to push back on potentially effective policy reform around alcohol in South Africa. There's 
close relationships with people in government. There have been close relationships in the past. I mean, even the current president used to be on the board of South African breweries. He resigned when he became deputy president. The old finance minister, Trevor Manuel, who was in government for a long time, is currently on the board of South African breweries. There were executives on South African breweries who were on the National Planning Commission. And the industries worked very hard to develop partnerships with government and use that, I believe, to undermine effective policy reforms. Whenever the government's tried to do something, the industry has pushed back incredibly hard and even used, for example, the sports ministry to push back against controls on marketing, saying that if if you do that, we won't be able to help support sports sponsorship and sports development work. So I think certainly we have to look at the relationship between government and industry. And my own view is that the the government should set the policy with the support of academics and civil society organizations. The industry should be allowed to comment on that. They can even put their own policies on the table for consideration, but there shouldn't be a formal working with the liquor industry to address alcohol-related problems. The industry's main goal is to make money for its shareholders through selling more alcohol. It's just such a fundamental conflict of interest. And what is the relationship relationship like between researchers and the government? Is that something that's improved with the pandemic or has it always been a good working relationship? The relationship hasn't been conflictual, but I think many of us have felt we're not always heard. We're sometimes given a space, but the industry is given a far stronger voice. For example, I went to one liquor policy conference, which I was speaking at and I found it was being almost co hosted by the liquor industry. And the head of Heineken came and he gave a presentation and paid for the conference dinner. The gifts were bottles of wine to the speakers and cooler bags and things like that. So we have a voice and we can put our messages out there, but often it's quite hard to be heard by government. What happened during the lockdown is we weren't consulted regarding the initial ban. And I think that's quite surprising because they did talk to industry. And yet many of us, in fact, our salaries are paid for by the government. Something I'm really excited to talk to you about is solutions. So what kind of measures do you think we should put in place after the pandemic or in the long term to try to resolve this alcohol problem? Can you go into a little bit more detail on that? Sure. I think we have about 20 point plan and these were presented in various opinion pieces and so on. And It's not just developed by the Medical Research Council. We've worked quite closely with a couple of other groups, one being the South African Alcohol Policy Alliance and the second one being the DG Murray Trust. These strategies that we're proposing really relate quite closely to the World Health Organization's recommendations. They've put out something called the SAFER Initiative, which which really focuses on availability, pricing, marketing, drink driving and treatment. And so many of our recommendations fall within those and we go a little bit beyond them and I'll I'll take you through them. One of the drivers with why we have so many unlicensed outlets is that people are trying to make a living out of selling alcohol. This is a long-term strategy. We need to look at rolling out viable, socially beneficial alternative income generation opportunities for home-based shabines. These are small outlets often run from people's houses, which operate often Thursdays to Sundays, and they sell alcohol. So we need to try and find alternative income generation strategies. 
The government has talked about raising the drinking age to 21. Here, I felt that maybe we should start with raising it to 19. Many of our high school children only finish at 18. Obviously, some will continue to drink, but maybe raise the drinking age to 19 and see how that goes. The issue that we have is that the illegal alcohol sold in South Africa is often industrially produced alcohol that gets sold through a licensed outlet and sold out the back door, and then it gets sold through an unlicensed outlet, or it gets sold through a large discount retailer, and then it gets sold through Shabins, which are unlicensed. So one of the strategies that worked quite well in, in Russia, which turned around their heavy drinking problem, was to set up a tracking and tracing system where on each alcohol container you have barcodes where it has to be scanned before it can be sold. So then you can track. If you find these containers being sold through unlicensed outlets or you find counterfeit products, you can then track back where they were sold and perhaps even manufactured. Around drink driving, we support the idea of reducing the maximum level for drivers of 0.02, which would allow people to have some alcohol, for example, in medications, but really would separate drinking and driving. But then that needs to be accompanied by better enforcement, and that relates to better breath testing capabilities and so on. I've also recommended whenever there's a major motor vehicle collision, that there should be mandatory taking of breath or blood alcohol. I think that would also help to counter the fact that people are getting away with drink driving. Around the packaging and advertising, one of the recommendations would be to ban our advertising except at point of sale. Obviously, people need to know what they're purchasing if they're buying it online or in a store. So you should limit marketing to, to that sort of environment. Or if you don't do that, at least have further restrictions on things like sports sponsorship. And also have limits on lifestyle marketing. If you're going to allow advertising on TV and radio in the newspapers, it should focus on the product itself. We have one product which is selling sunshine in a bottle. Really, we shouldn't have false advertising like that. Then the other issue which other countries haven't talked about, but I think it's important in South Africa, is to limit the sizes of containers. Maybe it could be changed later on, but if I was put in charge of, of addressing alcohol at a at governmental level, I would suggest we actually limit the sale of beer to 500 milliliter containers, and the same goes for ciders. And then wine and spirits, our proposal is to limit that to the 750 ml bottle and not have wine being sold in five liter boxes or bags and things. The other issue around pricing is something we urgently need to look at. Our excise taxes have dropped since the 70s. And we also have an anomaly where spirits is taxed at a greater rate when you look at the amount of pure alcohol in the container compared to wine and beer. So you're getting more absolute alcohol in wine and beer, well, they've been taxed less, less excise tax. So make those more congruent. And the other issue that's getting a lot of traction now, for example, in Scotland and Wales is minimum unit pricing. We need to raise the minimum price. Much of it's being sold for between four and six rand a standard unit. And perhaps we need to talk about raising it to eight to 10 rand per standard unit of alcohol. And then treatment, 
we've also got an issue with not enough treatment available for people who are dependent. We possibly have even five to six percent of the adult population who are dependent in some way on alcohol. And we need to make treatment options available for them with counseling, medically assisted treatment if they need it, and so on. And the final recommendation is around surveillance. This is really coming out of the pandemic. We realize we need better data on alcohol-related trauma. Really, it could be a great thermometer of the effectiveness of alcohol policy in the country if we made alcohol-related trauma a notifiable condition. So we would use clinical assessment tools to train doctors to be able to identify the level of alcohol-related trauma that comes in, and then we'd be able to monitor it over time so we can see if we're having an impact of, of implementing this sort of basket of measures that I've been talking about. Are these all ideas that have got data to back them up from other places already, or are they common sense ideas that we would still need to test? This is where we differ from the industry. We believe the interventions should all or mostly be, be the ones which there's an evidence base for. So when I talk about decreasing the limit for drink driving, I can refer to research which shows that in Australia and the US, by reducing the maximum alcohol level, they were able to reduce drink driving fatalities between 9 and 24%. The example of Russia that I talked about was where many of these were implemented in a single country where they instituted controls on marketing, on availability, hours and days of sale, and they had these tracking system on alcohol products. Last year in June, I presented a paper in Geneva at the World Health Organization. We did what we called an umbrella review of systematic reviews. So systematic review is a review of multiple studies on a single topic. So this was a review of reviews of alcohol policy interventions globally. And we looked at where the evidence base was strong. And most of these recommendations not only link up with that piece of research, but also over many years have been presented in WHO materials and books and things that have been written on effective alcohol policy. So all of them are evidence-based or mostly evidence-based. The ban and also the measures that you're suggesting are quite controversial. And the media and the alcohol industry have been putting out a lot of messages about the economic importance of alcohol employment, tax revenue, and so on. So how do you balance the harms you refer, refer to with the economic aspect of the alcohol industry? The industry did push back heavily, saying that there were economic costs, and they used a wide variety of strategies to try and push back against the government's policies. They would pull out heart-wrenching stories of people who'd lost jobs and how many people were dependent on them. They put out a lot of messaging around people in the glass manufacturing sector and people who were farmers and restaurateurs and waiters and all that sort of stuff. They talked about the VAT that the government would lose, but they didn't talk about the savings that we were making by not having these trauma presentations. And in the short term, yes, the country did lose excise tax and value-added tax at a greater extent than probably we were saving by the benefits. But I think one has to look broadly at the economic impact of alcohol. And I was going to refer to some data. This was a study done by Debbie Budlander in around 2009, which looked at the economic costs of alcohol to South African provincial and national government. And she worked out the direct cost was 17 billion rand and that the direct income 
over the same period of time was 16 billion. So in fact, there was a net economic loss. If you're just looking at excise tax and value-added tax, obviously there are other income taxes and that sort of thing as well. Research done by colleagues at the MRC found that the economic costs of alcohol also around 2009 were 38 billion. This is now not just government, but more broadly, that was the tangible cost that you could actually measure. Then when you included some of the intangible costs, we have to cost out the loss of life and productivity and things like that. It actually went up to over 200 billion and was 10 to 12% of gross domestic product. So the general belief in public health circles is that the economic costs of alcohol far outweigh the economic benefits. Obviously, that's hard to look at when you're faced with all the people employed in the downstream sectors. So it is hard to weigh that up. But no one's saying we must get rid of the alcohol industry altogether. What I'm saying is we need to get rid of the heavy use of alcohol, people drinking to intoxication, the overuse. Whether that will allow for a viable liquor industry I don't know. I think it'll be quite challenging. We're not here talking about the sort of wine farmers necessarily and the restaurateurs, but there are sectors, manufacturing sectors, and even retail sectors that depend on heavy, excessive alcohol use. And I don't think as a country, we should be entertaining that much longer. We need to work to end that situation. We need to find that middle ground where the cost to society isn't as great as it is now. The other issue that came up is the recognition of inequalities in society. Certain sectors of society could stock up and go through the ban without really feeling it much, but other sectors were cut off because they only make money on a weekly basis, for example, and they, they couldn't stock up. The harms, as our own research has shown, are distributed differently. The burden of alcohol is, is much greater than amongst the more wealthy sections of society. And the inequities don't help in this matter. And I think what happened was the people in the more middle and affluent areas, they ended up not understanding why the ban was being imposed, feeling like we can drink responsibly. But you can't have a policy which is aimed at certain sects of the population and not more broadly. The ban on selling in restaurants couldn't only be for upper affluent restaurants rather than sort of more down market restaurants where they maybe serve chips and, and, and beer. They had to have policies which were more equitable. And I think that's exposed some of the inequities in society as well. I suppose that with the economic effects of the pandemic and the lockdown, there's going to be more people put in that vulnerable category as well. Yeah. But hopefully people won't just be making money selling alcohol to, to feed themselves. We've got to deal with some of the structural issues in, in the country going forward and the corruption and the waste of money and things like that too. I think there's a much greater awareness that we have to do something about it. I've spoken to people in different political parties, and I think there's a recognition that it can't carry on, can't be business as usual. Much as industry would like to return to the situation where they can trade freely, they can market freely, and they can continue to make their profits, regardless of whether people are drinking heavily or not, I think those days are over. So certainly, I hope we won't just go back and not learn the lessons that we can learn from the lockdown and the bans of alcohol we've had in South Africa. It's not the first time in history that a country has had to make a choice between jobs and reducing social harms, and it won't be the last. In Afghanistan, for example, as of 2018, some 190,000 workers are employed full-time on opium poppy farms. In the UK, stricter regulation of betting machines in high street betting shops 
put 12,000 jobs at risk. Like the unregulated alcohol trade, copper cable theft has been a source of income for many without access to jobs in South Africa, costing public electricity utility ESCOM alone approximately 2 billion rand or 90,000 pounds a year. As global warming looms, there will be significant losses in the mining and logging industry. In the previous episode of Debatable, my guests discussed the way up between jobs and lives that governments have faced during the COVID-19 pandemic. The National Treasury's worst prediction is that South African unemployment could climb as high as 50%. Alternative streams of income will be hard to come by. But the money that consumers are spending on binge drinking has to be spent somewhere. Maybe it can be harnessed to boost a different, less harmful part of the economy. Thanks for listening to Debatable. Look out for the next episode, The F Word, which is all about fat. I'll be speaking to guests about the fat liberation movement, body positivity, and the UK's obesity epidemic, amongst other things. You can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, or follow me at DebatableKate on Instagram. Feedback and episode ideas are welcome at DebatableKate at gmail.com. That's Kate spelled C-A-I-T. Thanks again.